So we are in James chapter 5. It's hard to believe that we're coming near the end of James already. Uh, we've been, I don't know about you, but this has been a very interesting book to go through. Uh, I've read through James several different times, but to really park on it, meditate on it, break it down, see the context, see what's going on, it's been very inspiring and also extremely challenging to me, uh, especially this passage today. Probably out of all the passages that I've seen so far, this is one that's probably given me a, just a, made me stop and, and reflect because it's talking about, come, you who are rich. It starts off talking to the rich people, and I know when I've read that in the past, I'm like, yeah, James, nail those rich people. Yeah, they, you need to be more generous. And then I realize as I travel around the world that we're the rich people, uh, that we really are. Matter of fact, as I was looking at studying for this passage, I, was, I came across this article in this study that was done by John and Sylvia Ronsvall who've actually been carefully uh, analyzing the giving patterns of American Christians uh, for, since 1988. And, and they've actually gone back over 100 years. And they noticed this very disturbing trend as they've gone through this, is that you'd think if we make a little bit money, make a little bit more money, we'd give a little bit more, right? Have you ever said that? God, if I, just, if, if, if I made a little bit more, more money, I'd give a little bit more. But it's interesting. The times of, during the times of greatest affluence have actually been the times of lowest giving. It's in the times where we've had the most trouble financially where the greatest giving has occurred. For example, the, one of the greatest financial crises in uh, history, uh, for those that may not be familiar with the U.S., but was called the Great Depression, the stock market crash of 1929, and it went into the Great Depression. But it was, you know what is interesting? During that time, there was a greater percentage of giving among American Christians than times of great affluence. So what does that tell you? I mean, what does that tell us? I mean, for, for many of us, we think, oh, I, I'd give if I just had a little bit more. But the reality is, is the more we get, and, and I've done this, like, like, oh, if I just get enough money, I'll take care of this bill. And then more money comes in, and you're like, but now I can do this, 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 and this. I mean, I can push that off a little bit later. I can do this now. And we have this tendency to do that with God. And see, James is talking to these rich people. And he says that you have, you've got all this money and you've spent it on yourselves and you've failed to do what God wants you to do. And I think that's true of all Christians. Matter of fact, just in the United States, just in the United States, there's some troubling things that I, I came across in studying for this message. Matter of fact, in, in, uh, American Christians make so much money, so much money, that if only American Christians, and again, those who identify as a Christ follower... Uh, so I'm not exactly what the criteria, just he's looking at Christians generally. If American Christians would do no more than tithe or give 10% of their income, we would have enough of the private dollars of this world. I mean, we would have another $143 billion available to empower the poor and spread the gospel. That's, I mean, that's, that's a huge number. And we're like, oh, billions of dollars, okay, whatever, that's just out there. Let me, let's break it down a little bit more. Studies by the United Nations suggest that if just, um, hold on here, studies by the United Nations suggest that an additional 70 to $80 billion a year would be enough to provide access to essential services like basic health care and education for all the people of the earth. Okay, that's 70 to $80 billion. Now, if American Christians would do no more than tithe or, tithe or give 10% of their income, we would have enough private dollars to put this entire bill and still have 60 to 70 billion more to do evangelism around the world. Think about that. 
just tithed. That's not other people. That's you. That's me. We just did that. We would be able to take care of all poverty in the world, every child that's dying of famine or hunger, that's malnourished or disease, we could have taken care of if just American Christians were to tithe and have 60 to $70 billion left over. Now let me, as I, as I bring that out, I ask myself, why, don't, why doesn't this happen? Why? I think it's because that if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't want to give our money away. Matter of fact, I think we love money. We say we don't, but we sure act like we do. We want to hold on to it and hoard it. And just as we talked before, the Bible talks a great deal about spiritual agenda of money. Either we serve it or it serves us. And James kind of picks up that, takes that baton, and he starts talking about money, and he's going to show us what trusting in our riches really, where it gets us, where it leads us. And as we begin to explore this passage together, I would ask us all a question. What should I do with my money? What does God want to do with my money? How does God want me to to use my money? Now, some of you might say, well, I'm a student. I don't really have that much money now. You're going to engage with money pretty soon. If you're going off to college, you're going to have student loans. You're going to have all these different opportunities. And some of them are going to be like shackles on your soul. For the, there's others of us, and if, and if stats say this, you are just trying to make your credit card bills, and they've gotten so hard and so high because you've been spending, spending, and spending. And you're just trying to get more and more and more. You're trying to keep up with everybody else. You don't want to not fit in. See, James talks about money, and he says this is what's going to happen to those who aren't rich toward God. Matter of fact, he uses an example. He actually puts up an example before us, and he uses this group of people that James is writing to, which were probably rich landowners. You have to remember, the audience that James is writing to had been basically were displaced Christians, refugees, if you will, that were kicked out of their land for persecution. They were, had followed Jesus. They kicked them out of their country, and they had to go to someplace else. And these guys, whether they were business owners, they had been merchants, maybe they were uh, you know, to want some type of laborer, maybe they couldn't work in their career or job that they had. They were forced to just get a job, and the only place was this estate, this landowner. And they get this job, and these guys exploit their workers. And James uses this very condemning language to speak to them. I mean, he doesn't play around. He doesn't mince words. He comes after him. He says, you rich, come now, you rich. Howl and wail for the miseries that are about to come upon you. And really, he's showing us what wealthy people have a tendency to do, what we can or have done. We have to understand, God's going to hold us to an account for all he's blessed us with. Think about that. We have enough wealth to take care of and eliminate world poverty and get the gospel to go all over the world. We have a billion people around us dying of starvation or trying to survive on less than $1 a day. A billion of our neighbors in the world are starving. Do you think that we're not going to be held to an account for what we do with it? So James writes to us. God is using his words to speak to us. Because he understood that we can all have money trouble. Not money trouble in that we don't have enough, but money trouble in that it's causing and affecting the state of our soul. So I would encourage us all, as we really jump within this passage to see what God has for us, let's ask God, the Holy Spirit, to open our hearts, to show us how we can use this money. Because we're all going to use money 
We all are using money in one way, shape, or form. Unless God to shape us, to direct us, to challenge us, to help us be the people he wants us to be and to be found as faithful stewards of what he has given to us. So let's take a moment to pray and ask God for his Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us to show us what he wants us to receive today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you once again. Lord, we don't feel that we're wealthy. Matter of fact, we wonder how we're going to survive. We're so caught up with our daily pleasures, getting our own toys, that we fail to see the pain all around us. Lord, today, by the power of your Spirit, convict our hearts, cut us, show us who you are and how we might use this powerful blessing you've given to us. And Lord, let it be a blessing, not a burden. Let it be, let it enable the cause of Christ to go forth. Let it not be a word of condemnation, but let it be a word of inspiration of hope, of change, to be able to help those around us for the glory of your name, the furtherance of your kingdom, and the increase of our joy. Bless us and use us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right in. We're in James chapter 5. I'd encourage you to follow along with me as we go through this uh, pretty just challenging passage. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, he doesn't play around. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. He's addressing this rich. Now, who are these rich? I mean, we could say it's us, and I've already identified them as land owners. And he's not condemning them for being wealthy. Okay, that's one thing I want us to understand from the get-go. We shouldn't feel guilty for being blessed. Okay, some people feel so guilty because I have so much. It's like don't you know, shouldn't feel guilty. The question is about stewardship. Are you being faithful and using what you have properly? That's the question at heart. But these guys weren't doing that. They were totally misusing it. Now, unlike the unbelieving or, or the believing rich in Timothy's congregation, according to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, these are the wicked wealthy who profess Christ or the Christian faith and have associated themselves with the church, but whose real God is money. And they're prostituting the goodness and generosity of God so they can, so they can only anticipate divine punishment. See, James starts off wanting us to understand that this could easily be us. And he's taking this role of like an Old Testament prophet. And he's condemning the wealthy here. Now, the question is, if he's doing that with him, them, what would he say to us? I mean, we can easily become like them. I'd say we are a lot like them. We have money trouble. Just like then, when we focus on the wrong things. That's the first thing that I want us to write down. As we look within this passage and we really break it down, we're going to see that we can become just like the, the, those that James, James is addressing here, these rich. See, he draws out and explains a little bit about them. He says this, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You'd have laid up treasure on the wrong days. So they were so busy trying to get a lot of different stuff. And we're doing this. We want all this stuff. We want the, we want, first of all, we want status. That's what he's saying here. You've got all this stuff. Why do you have all this? Why haven't you given it away? Why do you have all this stuff in storage? Why do you have all these extra clothes? Why do you have this gold and silver? Because you want people to look at you, to say how good you are, to how talented you are, how pretty you are, how good you look. You want, you want people to praise you. I mean, we, we have this tendency to do that. We want to show off our status. We want to show off our bling. We want to show off the nice clothes we got. We want to show off that designer purse that we have or those nice shoes. We want to show off that car or that new cell phone or that new computer or how many followers we have. We want to do all of these different things because we want to show our status off. And that's because we're focusing on the wrong things. And that's what James's people or the, the people, the rich that James is addressing, were doing. They were focusing on their own status. And this is happening in the church, by the way. It happens among pastors, leaders. As a matter of fact, Ronald Sider, uh, who's kind of a uh, social critic, a lot of the different practices of Christians, he's a believer himself, but he wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a biblical study. And in the book, he quotes a sermon by Paul E. Tomas, who is the former president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And Tomas says, I, wrote, I saw some t- read some time ago that Upton Sinclair, the author, wrote books called The Jungle. Uh, he uh, was addressing a group of ministers, and he actually read from James chapter 5, this passage. But he didn't say it was from the book of James. He actually attributed it to a woman who was named Emma Goldman, who was an anarchist at the time. And he attributed it to her. And when they heard that it was from her, these guys started calling for her head, these pastors. They said, she should be deported. She shouldn't say anything like that. How dare she condemn the rich? Because they were the people that were being called out. But then he revealed that it was from the book of James. See, the reality is, is that many of us, we're, we're great. I mean, and, and Christians want to do this. We're great when we, got, we talk about God wanting to prosper us. But when we talk about being a steward or giving up something... That doesn't draw a crowd very well. That thins the herd. People want to hear about the blessing, but they don't want to hear about the responsibility. They don't want to have to give up. None of us do. That's exactly what James is calling us to do, and he's, he's showing us through them that they focused on the wrong things. They were focused on their status, and they were focused on their stuff. Look, you have all this stuff that's rotting. You have all these different clothes that are just sitting in the closet. I mean, you got so many you don't know what to do with. I mean, we, my, my wife and I, uh, our, uh, my mother-in-law actually works for very wealthy uh, people in Palm Beach, where, out where, where Trump has his estate. She actually sees and drives by it all the time. Uh, we've had opportunity to go over there and see some of these huge mansions. And she has one client who often gives some of her clothes to my wife because it fits my wife, which is great for us. And the thing is, is she buys these really expensive stuff, and she has so many of them that she never even wears them. She just acquires, acquires, acquires. And the reality is, of many of us, we may not be like that, but we have so much stuff that we don't know what to do with. Because our focus is on getting more and more and acquiring more and acquiring more. See, when we're focusing on the wrong things, it might be status stuff, or it could be security. He's keeping gold and silver it's sitting in the bank. Hey, I got time. I got rest. I even have this grain that's just sitting there and sitting away. And he's saying, James is saying, no, it's rotting. You're not doing anything with it. You're not out there using it. You're taking in, but you're not giving out at all. And as we've learned before, there are two bodies of water 
within the nation of Israel. There is the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, both fed by the Jordan River. The difference is, is the Sea of Galilee takes in and gives out. The Dead Sea doesn't give out. It just pulls and stays and everything dies. Nothing can live. See, when we're taking, 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 we can't help other people. And for many of us, we've banked our security on our money rather than God. Matter of fact, I came across this, this quote that really kind of hit me by a guy named Oscar Romero. Now, many of you may not know who he is. He's probably a, a kind of a blip within history. Uh, but he served as the Archbishop of El Salvador for a few years in the late 1970s. And he said this, How many there are that would better not call themselves Christians because they have no faith? They have more faith in their money and possessions than in the God who fashioned their possessions and money. They have more faith in their money and their possessions than in the God who fashioned their possessions and money. Romero understood James well. As I said before, he'd been the Archbishop of El Salvador during the late 70s. Matter of fact, he spoke out against the combination of the wealthy elites and the government for their systematic campaign of torture and murder of the El Salvadorians. And this caused him to earn their ire and frustration, which eventually led to his being assassinated on March 24, 1980, just because he challenged them on what they were doing, how they were treating other people. They were hoarding and not giving. See, we have this tendency to focus on the wrong things. And when we do, we look at status, stuff, security, and we do nothing for our Savior. We do nothing for our Savior. It's true. When we're taking in all the time, I mean, are we really honoring God? Are we making God first just as we looked within that jar? Do we put God in first? You know, it's interesting. We're great when it comes to the blessings, but we have this tendency to begin to drift over to our own stuff and our own desires and fulfilling our own needs and wants. Matter of fact, the nation of Israel, fascinating study in the history of the the Jewish people. Uh, One part really has always struck me. It's after they had been brought out of exile in Babylon. They'd been brought back into the promised land, and they had a chance to rebuild the temple and reestablish themselves as God's people. And God had commanded them to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so they started off the project, ready to go, rolling up sleeves. Let's build this. But then opposition came. Whenever a work of God is, is happening, there's always going to be opposition. I don't know why we don't think that, that, there's, that we're, we're going to have it scot-free. And people must say, well, it must not be of God. So they abandoned the project. They said, eh, we don't need to worry about God right now. I'm just going to build my own house and take care of it. Sixteen years passes when God sends the prophet Haggai to address them. Because they were struggling. They're like, wait a minute, we have all this money, but it never seems to be enough. I'm, 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 I've got food, but yet I'm hungry. I've got drink, but I'm thirsty. I'm not, I got clothes, but I'm, I'm cold. Matter of fact, I get money, and next thing I know, it seems like it's gone. I had this man once, I used to work at a grocery store, and he came up to me, and he pulled out his wallet. And he goes, see this wallet? I said, yeah. He goes, you know what it's made out of? I said, what? He goes, onion leather. I said, onion leather? He goes, yeah. Every time I open it, I cry. <laughs> See, we always think that. We think that we don't have enough, but we're not doing it, we're not investing in the Savior, and God is telling us that He's behind it. That if you continue to invest in yourself, then I'm not going to bless you. Matter of fact, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 3 through 11, uh, God, through Haggai, says this, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? You got your nice place! 
You got your, your house to the picket fence while my house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Take a look in the mirror. Look at your life right now. You've sown much. You put in a ton of work. You're working all the time, and it never seems to be enough. You've sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you're still hungry. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but you're still freezing cold. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. No matter how much you get it out, you're still opening it, going, man, I'm still crying. There's no money. Why isn't there any money? How do I make this much money and I still don't have enough? That's where he says, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. What are we doing for God? We're taking for ourselves making sure we got the nice car, maybe we should get the right education, maybe we get the nice stuff, got to have this, got to have that, got to have this. God, I'm going to keep putting you off, putting you off, putting you off. We need to put God back first, first. God called them back to himself to honor him, and these guys weren't. But notice back in our text what happens if you continue just to be about yourself. Look what happens. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord, the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, what happened is, is that when we become so concerned with our money, we forget those around us. We have a tendency to focus only on ourselves. Isn't that the story for those that know the Christmas carol? Wasn't that the problem with Ebenezer Scrooge? He kept trying to take, 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 and fill, 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 and hold on, hold on, hold on. We have a tendency to forget those around us. He didn't pay attention to his family, his friends, his co-workers. He had no sympathy and no compassion. But how do we forget those around us? Notice what these guys do. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. See, he, he, they managed to cheat others from what they deserved. Are you trying to cheat people from what they deserve, trying to keep hold for yourself? Rather than pay them, maybe you're an employer and you're saying, rather than pay them, I'm going to do a deal right now that I get to keep this money. And you know what? I might even find a technicality to keep them from doing it. Or I'm going to keep paying them in such a way that really, you know, they need me, but I don't have to pay them a fair wage. These guys were cheating those from what they deserved. And not only that, but these guys cried out. I mean, twice we see, we see within verse 4. The laborers who mowed your field, but you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, these guys were day laborers. And so they would come in and they, I mean, again, many of them had been refugees. They didn't have any other place to work. And they were just waiting for someone to come and get them and hire them out for the day. They'd do the job, waiting, needing that money for their family. They had bills to pay. They had food to put on the table. And these guys would go, psh, you don't have any legal rights. I'm not going to pay you. So they cheated him from what they deserved. And then these guys cried out, hey, I need help. Please help me. I, I'm really struggling right now. I've got to get this bill. My family needs food. Please, I did the job. Pay me, pay me, pay me. They're like, Psh, no. See, when we refuse to hear the cries 
or choose not to hear the cries of those around us. We're too focused on our money. They chose not to hear their cries. These wealthy landowners had the ability and responsibility to help them, and they chose not to help them even after they kept crying out. You have to be pretty bad to hear the cries of those around you and refuse to help. And we have a responsibility to help those around us who are less fortunate and the most vulnerable among us. Actually, we see this in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking to the Israelites, and he says this, and it's very interesting. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now he brings up Sodom. Okay? When we hear the term Sodom and Gomorrah, we often think of homosexuality, and that's why they got judged. That's only part of it. Sexual immorality was only part of the reason why they were judged. Ezekiel draws it out a little further. He says this, She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, and that's the sexual immorality part. But what God is really hitting them is not their sexual immorality, but their lack of generosity. Is they weren't seeking to help those around them. So I removed them when I saw it. That's pretty, pretty bad. I mean, we can see they were judged pretty, pretty heavily. So we've seen two characteristics, but a third characteristic that we can look at from our text is found in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself, your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, it's interesting. There are two words here in Greek. The first word is luxury. It literally means dainty living, meaning that they really didn't have to do manual labor. They didn't have to work really hard, that they can enjoy kind of the finer things. And it's not a bad word, actually. It's a word that's used that God speaks uh, and uses the same word in speaking of the nation of Israel when they were taken into the promised land, that they could live uh, with every man could have his uh, honey and living under a grapevine. It's a land of milk and honey, and it was a picture of blessing. But it's the second word that really brings out the next one, in self-indulgence, which is saying that not only were you, you had this, but you went even further to being wasteful. And the word that's used here is really interesting. It's the idea of prodigal living, of just using it for yourself, feeding yourself, feeding your own selfish and sinful desires of consuming, 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 and never giving a thought to helping other people. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a lot of that in our country today. We're all about us getting what our stuff, about me, about me, about what I get, about my status, about what I deserve. And he's saying here, these people only care about satisfying their own pleasures. They care only, that's the next point in letter C, they care only about our own pleasures. That's what they were doing. They were continuing just indulging themselves. And this point, the point of this verse actually recalls the parable that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus. That Lazarus was in torture in this life. This rich man just enjoyed himself and had fun and never helped Lazarus. And they get into eternity. And now this rich man is in torture while Lazarus is enjoying, and enjoying comfort finally. And that's where the, the rich man calls out to Father Abraham, and he says, Father Abraham, tell Lazarus to dip his finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, because I'm in torture in this place. He says, nope, you had your chance. You did nothing with it. It's a picture about being a good steward and our failure to do so. And here, these guys cared only about their own pleasures. But that's not else. That's not the only thing. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
See, when we condemn others to get what we want, we can see that we're really forgetting those around us. These guys were condemning those around them to get whatever they want. They would take out anybody, and these were innocent people. These are people that had done no wrong. They weren't resisting. They weren't fighting. They didn't come with an agenda. They were honest people, and these guys are condemning them. And it's the idea of them going to court and finding a technicality to say, well, I don't have to. I mean, they're following the letter of the law in order not to fulfill their responsibility. And they're saying, hey, it's all legal, but it's the heart of the law that they weren't doing. But they're condemning other people to get what they want. It actually brings to mind the story of Naboth and Ahab. Anybody ever heard that story? Naboth and Ahab. It's a great story. It's found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. And Naboth has this vineyard. He'd inherited it from his parents, his grandparents. His, he'd, I mean, he'd work, learned to work this vineyard from, from since the time he was a little boy. And his grandfather would show him how to work different parts of it and how to prune and how to harvest the grapes. And, and they could make a good vintage of wine and all these different things and really enjoy it. And it was his inheritance. It had gone from generation to generation. It had the Naboth label on that bottle. All right? And, and so it was something that he'd inherited and took great pride in. But it was, it was really close to the palace. It was a great location. And Ahab had a vineyard himself. I mean, he was the king. He had his own vintage. Uh, he had a label called heretic. Um, but he has this label, and he's like, you know what? I, I need a better location. I, I like this Naboth's vineyard. It's a great location. It's got a great yield. It's, it's beautiful. So he goes to Naboth, and he goes, Naboth, I got a deal for you. Uh, you know, I've got this great vineyard down the street. I'm going to let you have it. If I can have yours, can we trade them? Matter of fact, I'll give you some extra compensation. I just want this one because he's so close to the palace. And Naboth's like, you know what? I can't give up the, the heritage of my, my ancestors. This is my family. We've been here for generations. I mean, see that over there? That's my initials that I did with my grandfather. See that over there? He has story after story after story. It's his home. And so he says, no, I'm, I'm sorry, King Ahab. I, I just can't do that deal. I hope you understand. Ahab's like, yeah. He goes home and he's depressed. He wants that vineyard pretty bad. So he gets down and lays himself on the bed, and he's having a pity party, and his wife walks in. She's like, what's your problem? He says, oh, this Naboth guy, I tried to make a deal with him, and he won't give me the vineyard. I offered him a better one. She's like, are you the king or what? You're the king. Take what you want. I'll help you out. Let me take care of it. Honey, we'll take care of everything right now. So she comes with up this little, cocks this little scheme. She says, you know, we're going to have this fast. People are going to get hungry. And at the, at the fast, as we're celebrating together, I'm going to have Naboth. I want you to put him at the head of the table. And I want you to get these two guys. And I want you to accuse him of blasphemy and cursing the king. Now, people are already hungry. When you're hungry, you get hangry. You know, you get a little on edge. And these guys had a great devotion for God. They're focusing on God. The idea that this guy would be cursing God and the king causes them to respond in anger. They drag Naboth out, and they stone him. They kill him. Word gets back to, to uh, Ahab's wife, Jezebel. And she decides, she's like, honey, I got good news. I got your vineyard for you. I told you I'd take care of it. She hands it over. He goes in going, I got my vineyard. Feeling good. No one really knew about the plan. Him and Jezebel, they pulled the wool over their eyes. Except God saw it. He'd taken the life of Naboth. He took the inheritance of Naboth. So God comes back and speaks and condemns Ahab through Elijah. He says, you know what? You took Naboth's life, I'm going to take yours. Matter of fact, you took Naboth's inheritance, I'm going to take yours. 
Every one of your male descendants is going to die. And you're going to die a humiliating death and the dogs are going to lick up your blood. God doesn't play around. See, that's what he was doing, though. He was condemning others to get what he wanted. But you can't fool God. You might do that in your job. You might try to set up somebody else. You might try to do it to get what you want. You're willing to deceive someone else or make someone else uh, suffer so you can get what you want. See, we have this tendency to forget those around us, and God can't be fooled by that. He doesn't. He's not fooled. Matter of fact, Ahab is a great representative of this principle and helps us to see that God takes such actions of selfishness seriously. And James warns us of this. He says that they should weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you and that they have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. His words are not pretty. They are condemning of these landowners. And if we pursue the same path as they did, his words are a warning that our future is in danger. Our future is in danger. See, continuing in this path of self-indulgence, we can see that we are in serious trouble. God will bring judgment. And James wants us to remember a few different things. First of all, our stuff is going to burn. Our stuff is going to burn. Look at verse 3 again. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Fire is often used of judgment, of purification. And here it's the idea that it, you are, it, it's going to burn up. It's not going to last. None of your stuff are you going to take with you. I was uh, at an estate sale a little while ago, a couple months ago. Uh, there was one just on Downer. My wife got a deal, so she's like, you need to check out some stuff. They have some suits that are pretty crazy that you would like. So I went into this house. This guy had been a dentist in a huge house. I mean, beautiful. You walk in, and it was so depressing, though, watching all these strangers just walk in and mill through all this guy's bedrooms, going through his closet, just picking his stuff. It's like all this stuff that this guy acquired, and he was pretty wealthy. I mean, he had a ton of suits. He had all these clothes, and he had art and all these different things. And watching these people just come in, seeing the best deal they could get, the best discount. Now, I'm not condemning estate sales, but I'm saying is that it's, it's just depressing to see how this person spent all of their money. And here people are trying to get the best deal of it. None of it's going to be remembered. No one knew who his name was. It's all gone in a moment. I was, uh, my, my first few years of pastoral ministry, I was in Chicago. And there was a woman there, her name was Ruth, um, Ruth Axelson. And Ruth uh, was an older woman. By the time I came uh, to the church, she had just become a shut-in. She couldn't make it to church any longer, and she was starting to lose her mind. She would call the church every so often, and she'd forget that she was in America. She came when she was a little girl from Sweden, and she would yell us it in Swedish. At least I think it was Swedish. And, and she would call, and we kind of developed this relationship with her, and she didn't have any family. Her husband had died. She never had any children, no cousins, no relatives. And when she passed away, we found out that she had all these storage units. Uh, and so it... For whatever reason, we as a church went in to help remove all of these items from the storage units. It was so depressing. Just taking everything that this woman accumulated and we're just throwing it into dumpsters. I mean, it was just garbage. Stuff that she just held on to. And the reality is, is a lot of the stuff that we spend so hard to get a hold of, the things that we acquire, we think are so important, are just going to be the next generation's garbage. It's going to be tossed out. The question is, is what are we really investing in? What are we giving toward? What are we giving our lives? Are we giving our lives to have other people notice how talented we are or how great we are or how wealthy we are or how significant we are? What are we doing? 
God is showing us in this passage, our stuff is going to burn. Don't give your time and all your money just to getting stuff. Invest it in what's going to last forever. Our stuff is going to burn. We need to remember that. And secondly, what makes it worse, all that stuff comes together, as he says in verse 4, or in verse 3, excuse me. He says, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Evidence. It's going to be used as evidence of your judgment before God. Matter of fact, you are storing up judgment, and then when God st- you stand before God, he's going to go, okay, I gave you this amount of dollars, I gave you this amount of things, and what do you got for it? Oh, okay, you got some gold necklaces, you got that, okay, you got, you know, that's evidence of your indictment. What'd you do for me? You invested it in that which cannot last. It's going to be, it's storing up judgment. And just like a dam has water filling, 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 that you're going to release that, that dam and all that water is going to go destroying everything against this path. And it's all these things where you accumulate are going to be used as judgment against us if we do not turn away from our sin. That's why James says, Come now, you rich, weep and hail for the, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And here the background makes clear that the misery that is coming upon the rich not, refers not to earthly temporal suffering, but to the condemnation and punishment that God will met out on the, them on the day of judgment. And the word, the word for misery here in Greek is fascinating. It's actually in the plural, which is accentuating the degree of the misery that will come upon them in judgment. You know there's degrees of punishment within hell, by the way? according to what it is that you have revealed about you. I don't think people realize that. They just think that hell is hell, and it's like, no, and and they think Satan's in charge of hell. First of all, Satan's not in charge of hell. It was actually created for him to be in, to house him, and that there will be people that are be suffering more according to what it is that they knew or understood, and it will never, ever have any relief that's why he says, weep and howl, wail. This is not, this is not something to play with. This is, your, your imagination can't even begin to fathom what hell is like. I don't think any of us can. I mean, what you see in TV movies and things like that, it's got nothing on what God has in hell. And that's not where he wants people to go. He doesn't enjoy that. He's given us the glories of heaven. That's where he wants us to be. And not everybody goes there. We have to get over this notion that everybody dies and goes to heaven and goes to a better place. Biblically speaking, that's a lie. It might make people feel good at the funeral, but it's a lie. It's one of the fallacies that smart Christians believe. I mean, smart Christians believe some dumb things. Seriously. Not everybody dies and goes to heaven. The Bible is extremely clear that there's only one way. And that is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That there is salvation in no one else, but it's through Jesus and him alone that we have salvation. And through what he did on the cross, that is where our salvation is. You will never be good enough. You'll never do enough righteous things. You'll never have a good enough life. Your good will never outweigh your bad. It's only what, and what we do with what Christ has done in believing in him. We are storing up judgment if we continue on that path. Now, if we wish to avoid such a future, and I do, I don't know about you, that doesn't sound fun to me. That scares me. And it should. Some people are like, well, you shouldn't be scared of God. Yes, you should. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, not such a, if you're a believer, there's a, a fear and an awe. My father died when I was a boy. 
So my grandfather kind of acted as my surrogate father figure. He was one of the strongest men that I knew. And as a kid, we just recently went, uh, I mean, not as a kid, um, We'd spent a lot of time at their house. My grandfather's in the last days of his life. Uh, hospice was called in, and, but he's, he rebounds and he goes down, he rebounds and he goes down, and this strong, towering figure of a man in my life is now in a wheelchair. And I'm watching him deteriorate in front of me, and he was the strongest man that I knew. Matter of fact, as kids, uh, we used to have this strength contest with my family. All the men would come together and they'd grab a scale, and who could squeeze it the hardest would win. And as a kid, I'm like, oh, I thought I'm so macho. And I, I grab, and it's like 25. My grandfather grabs, and it goes to like 200. And he was 75 years old. Okay, he was a strong dude. But as kids, we feared him because uh, he would get this tone, and you knew you didn't want to get him angry. And as I'm walking through his house, we're just kind of reminiscing as I'm walking through his house as they're kind of preparing it. And I'm seeing little marks and dings that we did when we were kids. And I noticed this uh, uh, ceiling fan. And there's a ceiling fan with this kind of floral glass around it, and there's a chip out of it. And I laughed when I saw it. When I was 10 years old, I was vacuuming. And when I got done with the vacuum, I thought I was a rock star. So I took the cord and I swung it, and I was having fun, and I knocked the glass and broke it. And the first thing I did is I went to my grandmother, and I said, please don't tell Papa, because <laughs> he will kill me. And I loved him, but I feared him. I, had an, I, I feared him. There was this thing about him. It was fear and love together. And that's the fear that God's talking about. We'd have this fear of God. It's, it's not just of running away. If you're an unbeliever, yeah. But there's the idea of he is not tame. He's powerful and he's loving at the same time. And, we, and he's showing us this passage, not for our condemnation, but for our restoration. So that we might be repentant. That we might turn from that path. That we might go and pursue something altogether different. That's why he's giving it to us, to tell us that you should turn away from that type of life before it's too late and turn to me and what I have for you. And so how do we do that? What's the first thing we need to do is seek his kingdom first. Seek him and his kingdom first. Jesus said this in in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, I don't have this on the screen, so you'll have to pardon me. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33... But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom first. When we want to, again, want to make the first priority, when we put the stone in the jar, put his kingdom, who he is and what he wants for us first, at the center of who we are. So seek his kingdom first. And then next, lastly, it's the last point for the day, is we need to take the necessary steps to change. To do this type of life, to do this, what, what God wants us to do, is not going to happen overnight. I mean, many of us, I don't know about you, but I feel a little overwhelmed. It's like we've been blessed with so much. What do I do? Where do I go? Begin with taking the first step. Maybe it's beginning to give, to give it away, to give it to God, give it his kingdom so that his name might be furthered all over the world. It might be to, to take care of a, an orphan. We have many opportunities of sponsoring orphan children from all over the world. Maybe it's doing that. Maybe it's simplifying your life. Maybe it's giving things away. Maybe it's just taking a dumpster out in your yard and throwing it in. All of that extra stuff that you need to get rid of. Some of you have basements and closets that are so full with extra stuff that you can't imagine giving it away. It's amazing to me, and I don't know if other countries have this, but hoarding, hoarding. I mean, we have TV shows based on people hoarding and gathering more stuff. I don't think you see this in other parts of the world. This is mainly an American affluent thing. 
that we can get, 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 get. Let's try giving it away, practicing that. It's a discipline to give things away. And we have an opportunity, by the way, for you to give. We have a Memorial Day uh, garage sale that we're going to be having at the end of next month at our Sugar Grove campus. And people come from all over, and we fill it. And all the money goes, proceeds go to missions. But get rid of things. Purify your life. Get rid of that extra clothes that you're not using. You don't need to hold on to. But let's simplify our lives, taking these steps to change, to give, and give our time as well to help other people. Giving regularly or, or to others giving more or seeking to serve or volunteering your time to help those in your community who are going through a difficult phase. Whatever the case may be, let's be faithful. We may not have been. We may have been just living like those wealthy landowners James was talking about. But let's repent, turn in a new direction, and make a change and show by our lives that we're not selfish consumers, but we're Christ followers who seek to give and serve in such a way that others are treated fairly, the poor are helped, and so that everyone might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm one of those rich. Lord, forgive us for just investing in ourselves and not being good stewards. Lord, help us to be good stewards. Help us to find and use the money that you've given us. Lord, we, we enjoy it. We recognize it's from you. But help us to realize that we're going to be held to give an account for all you've entrusted to our care. And Lord, I know that there are those who are genuinely struggling within our midst, trying to figure out how to make ends meet. I pray that you give them and show them how that they can truly trust in you. Lord, give them the wisdom and the patience necessary and the discipline to make the changes they need to whether it's learning how to live and operate within a budget and giving every dollar a job or whether it's uh, setting aside a portion of their income uh, for, your, for your use, for the expansion of your kingdom, or whether, Lord, it's simplifying our lives and cutting things out that are not necessary. Lord, please give us wisdom and discipline to be good stewards. We know, Lord, that we have the capacity as individuals, as Christians, to help eradicate poverty. And Lord, ensure that your gospel will go to the furthest reaches of the earth. So direct us, empower us, and use us for the glory of your name. And Lord, truly help us to be faithful stewards and give us the courage and the discipline necessary to make those changes for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.